Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. Today, we're going to look at Pinot Noir, a grape that only occupies about 1,200 hectares of South Africa's vineyards, but which has produced a great many notable wines in the past few decades. Many consider it to be the world's most fickle grape variety, in the vineyard, the winery, and even in the bottle. As in France, much of the Pinot Noir planted in South Africa goes to making traditional methods sparkling wines, but we're going to look at still wines today. We'll start by meeting a few winemakers who have chosen to specialize in this difficult but rewarding variety, and hear how they first got hooked on it. Good day. I'm Peter Finlayson. I am the founder at the Bushard Finlayson Winery, which is based here in what is known as the Himalayan Arda Valley, or translates into the Valley of Heaven and Earth. And we are located roughly halfway between Cape Town and the southern point of Africa. To give you an idea, if you travel by motor car from Cape Town to the southern point of Africa, it will take you about three hours. To reach the town of Hamanus, which is the village where we are based, it would be one and a half hours. My position here as founder, I am a trained winemaker, a trained enologist, but now in my twilight zone, as I like to put it, I really have a overall encompassing position at Bushard Finlayson and enjoy the good parts, put it that way. Here at Bushard Finlayson, we produce two Pinot Noirs, the Gulf and Peak, which would be the grape from the harvest. It's not regarded as a, a second label by any means. And then about 10% of our crop, or even less, will go into a cameo bottling, which we call uh, Tete de Cuvée. And the characteristic here is that we get wines with more body than you would expect to find in Pinot Noirs. And I like to think that the Tete de Cuvée is akin to a Grand Cru and the Gulf of Peak is at least akin to a, a Premier Cru. So there have been occasions early on where folks have said, no, our wines have got too much color and too much extract to be Pinot Noir characteristic. But is that not what great Pinot Noir strives to be? I arrived in the Himalayanada Valley when it was best described as undiscovered. And the vineyard where I started, which was the Hamilton Russell Vineyard, did not have a winery when I arrived. And then I set out to build a winery, which was a simple facility and we got the tanks in the day before the first grapes were harvested. The first grapes were Pinot Noir. But the other may we had other varieties to deal with and at that point there was no knowing what was going to emerge as the genie out of the bottle as I like to put it. But what is fascinating at that point I actually put my hand on the tank and I knew within days of the ferment starting that we were onto something good. And that was probably because there was an abundance and a good expression of color, which is not always available for those who started with Pinot Noir. The net result is that we've never looked back. The interest in Pinot Noir was something that I couldn't really avoid. So my father, Peter Felison, was the first winemaker to, I think, really take Pinot Noir seriously in South Africa or Let's say he was fortunate enough to have his first serious winemaking job at Hamilton Russell Vineyards, and they had a bunch of different varieties planted, and it turned out that the Pinot, despite being a fairly average poor clone, was pretty, pretty great. 
Hi there, my name is Peter Allen Finlayson, co-owner and founder and winemaker of Crystallum Wines. It's a brand I started with my brother back in 2007. We focus only on making Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. We buying fruit from a bunch of different growers. We also own some vineyard ourselves, work with about 11 different vineyard plots. We make a Chardonnay that's a, a blend of multiple vineyards, the same with a Pinot that we make, and then we make single vineyard wines as well, which are our top range of wines. We have the Peter Max Pinot, which is a multiple vineyard Pinot, so we use five different vineyards. Four of those vineyards are coastal, Himalayan Otter area, and then one is inland from Kloof. 700 meters high. So that's a, a wine that we make a higher production of, release it a little earlier than the others. And I like to think that it's a good representation of the vintage because it's from multiple areas and usually approachable when it's young, but nice and complex and fairly elegant and I think exhibits the cooler climate character that we try and portray. It's generally between 30 and 50% whole cluster in the winemaking. I tailor my whole cluster, so depending on the vintage, depending on the vineyard, I love whole cluster in Pinot, but I never want the wines to taste like whole cluster wines. I don't want one kind of winemaking technique to dominate. So it's always about trying to make a best possible estimate as to what level of whole cluster is going to add without starting to dominate. Then I have the Bonafide, which is single vineyard Pinot from the Himalayan Otter Valley. So that's from lower down. It's at about 100 meters high. Pretty heavy clay soil. So the wine generally has got good backbone to it, fairly strong tannin, powerful wines in the Crystallum context. I wouldn't say it's a powerful wine on its own, but in the context, it's fairly powerful. Then if we go further up the Himalayan Otter, we get to the Himalayan Otter Ridge. And there I make a single vineyard wine called Cuvée Cinema. And that is certainly our most critically acclaimed wine. And I think the reason for that is is that this was going to come out sometime during this discussion, but it's fairly Burgundian. It has that kind of savory spice with lovely bright red fruit combined with fairly good structure, but still light enough to carry that. And just a, a really lovely balance in the wine. And then we have the Mabalal, which is the single vineyard from Elan's Kluf. So much more elegant, doesn't have the tannin that you get in the Himalayan Otter, but has lovely natural acidity, lovely freshness, but much more kind of fruit focused and perfumey than the Himalayan Otter Pinots. My name is Gottfried Mocker. I am the chief winemaker at Bukenhout's Kluf Winery here in Franschhoek, South Africa. I joined the company in 2015. And working together with Mark Kent, who is the managing partner and really the brand behind what Coconut Kluf is today. We obviously have several ranges within our Coconut Kluf house, the premium Coconut Kluf ranges. And then we have chocolate block. We do brands like Wolf Trap, Porcupine Rich. And then I think a wine that is quite new to our family and for me a very exciting project that's very close to my heart is Cap Maritime, which is a project we started a few years ago. We're currently developing a farm with planted vineyards, and this is where we are purely focused on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I've got a real passion for the variety, especially Pinot Noir. When I finished school in South Africa, I was quite unsure what I wanted to do in life, and my parents decided it would be a great thing for me to go to Europe. I started to work in the Rhine Valley in Asmanshausen, which, funny enough, is an area that is quite a small, famous area for making Spätburgunder, which is Pinot Noir. And I started to fall in love. And it was maybe my real experience with, with wine was Pinot Noir, my first experience. And through the years working in Europe, um, studying in Europe, spending a lot of time in Burgundy, 
I became very passionate about the varieties Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And when I came back to South Africa, I obviously looked for winery that focused a bit on Pinot and Chardonnay, and I found a winery in France called Cape Chamonix. And there I started really focusing on Pinot and Chardonnay, but also over the years with Cabernet Franc and other varieties. So when I joined Mark at Coconuts Club, he really gave me the opportunity to follow my heart and still make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay as well. It seems like the first Pinot Noir cuttings were brought to South Africa by Abraham Parold around 1910. Parold is the same University of Stellenbosch professor who crossed Pinot Noir with Cinso to create Pinotage 15 years later. For most of the 20th century, the Pinot Noir clonal material South African winemakers could choose from was quite limited. We were working with what was then known as the BK5 clone, which was in fact a clone that had arrived from Switzerland, from Vadensville, to the extent that was the only Pinot Noir material being grown in the Western Cape during the 1970s. And it was, I could describe it as false Pinot, because while it's the same grape, it does not have the character of the true Pinot that comes from Dijon. And it lacked a deep crimson blue color. It tended to become terracotta quite rapidly in the bottle. And it lacked a good tannin backbone. So we actually had to work to get good tannin out of the BK5 clone, but it had very good aromatics. So it was a pleasing one, and this is possibly why it evolved in Switzerland, because less heat, maybe the aromatics and the softer touch were the way the market was recognized it. And 10 years later, when I started the Bouchard Finlayson and Wineries, I was at the early stages of the availability of the Dijon clones, and that just presented a different narrative to the extent that the public did not recognize the new Dijon clones as, as Pinot Noir to which they had been accustomed. Uh, the Dijon clone, uh, a great deal more tannin structure, to the extent that when I started working with the Dijon clones, I had to reverse much of my th- modus operandi, dealing with the ferment and the crush of the Dijon clones. And that has been a slow process to develop what I call a more gentle hand on working with the grape. Many people describe Pinot Noir as light. Well, it's in fact not light. It's a wine that can take a long time to mature, and I think half of the success of Pinot Noir is the ability to handle it so that you don't get metallic qualities, but you try and arrive with what I call some of that sweet middle. It's not a sweetness as such, but it's a fruit smoothness in the middle. A fascinating grape from that point, and having spent a life working with it, I think I've developed a fairly comfortable understanding with the grape. I think the clones that work best for me are uh, three Dijon clones, 115, 667, and 777. I'd say 115 is probably my favorite just in terms of a mix between fruit and savory and spice that it offers. And then for us, rootstocks, obviously, are super important. Something like Rifter 110, I find, works really well in the clay. And just matching your clone and rootstock to the right site, I think, is super, super important. I think a lot of the problems being the leaf roll virus, which we've managed to, I think, get control of, in most of the vineyards that we're using, but the vast majority of the vineyards are between 15 and 25 years old. So really looking forward to see what those do as they get older.
In South Africa, people would often talk a little bit about the virus issues, especially with leaf roll. And it's so important that you work with virus-free plant material and that you put those practices in place from day one. And so this is the lovely thing about developing something from scratch, is that you obviously have the opportunity to do these things right from the beginning, um, not inherit somebody else's problems. And then we actually got Rosa Kruger involved. Rosa is quite a known viticulturist in South Africa and we just needed that person that can give that extra lift to our development. Through Rosa we could work closely with a nursery in South Africa called Vititech, who obviously can guarantee virus-free plant material. I historically had clones that I the new, obviously, burgundy clones that I like. I like these clones, the 115, especially for Pinot. You must remember in South Africa, we have obviously much more UV effect on, on the vineyards. So obviously, the sunlight hours, those things have quite an effect. More thicker skin Pinots are obviously beneficial, obviously retain more acidity. I like more textural wines. I generally don't like clones that are too aromatic and too perfumed. And we always say we're not so interested in what a wine tastes now, but what it's going to taste like in five years from now and going onwards. So we always try to keep a little bit of that in mind. So I had those clones, and obviously when Rosa got involved, she obviously had, because she obviously had so much knowledge, she also brought some of her ideas to the mix. You must remember it's always good to also look at clones that's been in the country for a long time, because then the nurseries have been working with these clones for a long time, I think the clones had the opportunity to develop and mutate to some extent a little bit in our regions and adapt in a better way. That is what I believe. Bukana Skuak, we obviously create quite a big array of wines. People always think it's just stylistically, but it's often quite geographically orientated. So just to put it in, like, so when we work with Syrah or those varieties, we really focus on Swatland. Cabernet or Semyon Franchuk and Stellenbosch for Cab. And when you think Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and you have an opportunity to go and select one of the regions that are one of the most interesting regions for this variety, then it obviously would be, for me, the Yemen Arder Valley. And if you look at what's happening there currently and we look stylistically at the wine, it seems to create Pinot and Chardonnay that really has its own sense of place. It's not Burgundy. It's not Newell. It sometimes speaks of a region that really creates a style of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that shows a little bit of that opulence of the Newell, but there's also real mineral pores in these wines and a real classicness. So for me, it was an, an obvious choice. Just go for the best and, and go establish yourself in that region as well. We're in the Upper Yemen Arda Valley. It's about a 35-hectare property. It's an absolutely stunning property. And when we went to look at the property, it was we walked onto it and we knew this is what we wanted. This is where we want to establish vineyards. It was maybe the first time that we actually took on a project where there was absolutely nothing. There was not even a tap on the property. It was just felt, so it was just vegetation, a lot of fainbos, some areas was a lot of alien species. And we obviously realized that it's not going to be the easiest vineyard development we've done. It's going to have its challenges. And yeah, so it's just fantastic. It's, it's, a, it's interesting the up in Yama Arda Valley because it's quite in the middle. So it's that first stage where you actually elevate it within the valley. So you kind of get a lot of more the lowish temperature influences. But we also like the soils. The top level was fantastic for maybe planting mainly the white variety. Chardonnay was much lighter soils, more sandstone type soils. And then lower down, it became more like what we call coffee clips. So this coffee stone type of soils. 
more iron iron levels, and where we will establish most of the Pinot Noir. The idea of the farm is to predominantly be about, I would say, about 70% white, that's Chardonnay, and about 30% red. It's been a very fun development and project to do. The nice thing about the Human Arda Valley for me has been the fact that it's quite a tight-knit community, wonderful bunch of people, besides now great producers like Hamilton Russell, and so who's obviously very well established, who's been making wines there for a long time, who's done all the pioneer work. But generally, it's a lot of boutique-type wineries, a lot of people assisting each other, helping each other. It's been actually a lovely atmosphere in the valley. We've got a, a young farm manager, and I just see the relationship between all these people. It's absolutely fantastic. So it's an established wine region, but it feels also everything is a start-up business that kind of happened only 10 years ago because everybody's so hungry for new things, for different things, for change. So it's an absolute privilege to be part of such a wine region. Pinot Noir is particularly successful in the Himalayana Valley. There's a quality there which is removed from the rest of the wine industry in South Africa in that the Himalayana Valley does not have a history of producers being connected to carpenters. It is only 40 years old. And it, like other Pinot Noir regions in, you would say, Mendocino and Sonoma Coast, etc., these are relatively new operations, but they've arrived through people who have this intense desire to produce great wines from this, what I call capricious grape, yeah. We have uh, closer proximity to a cold ocean. So you can use the Californian comparison with the cold Sonoma coast, etc. The ocean can be notably cold here, particularly in the summer when the southeasterly trade winds are blowing because they create upwelling, and the upwelling brings cold water to the surface, which can be at times as low as 10 degrees centigrade, which is about, what, about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And the mountain that we have as a backdrop to the Himalayana Valley, which you can see from Creation Winery, is in fact higher than Table Mountain. And for those who are familiar with the weather conditions around Cape Town, in the summer they have what they call the famous tablecloth, which is a cloud forced as a result of the 1,000-meter-high mountain. And we have a parallel cloud condition forced against the Tower of Babel mountain in the Himalayana, and that decreases sunlight. So you're getting cooler conditions in the peak of summer sometimes can go on for days. And we sometimes get a little bit of precipitation with this condition. So it's a beautiful example of microclimate working in balance between cold ocean, shale soils, and this cloud bank caused by a mountain. So it's, in that sense, it fits the bill for Pinot because Pinot worldwide functions in these little terroir perfect pockets. The Imanada is consistently carrying the banner, if I put it that way. Elgin has got every right to produce excellent pinots, and they have from time to time produced excellent pinots. Elgin, in a sense, has perhaps carrying the badge for Chardonnay at this point. It may have more to do with the, the horticultural approach between growers from Elgin and growers from the Himalayana, 
the growers from Elgin are much more scientific in terms of the vineyard husbandry, perhaps paying more attention to growth and fertilization as they would with apple orchards, whereas the Himalayana Valley has producers who come virtually solely from the glass to wanting to produce top quality wines. Time may prove differently, but at this point, this is the way it's evolving. France had more temperature fluctuations, so we had very hot afternoons, but we did get cooler nights because of being in a mountain. But there it was always that thing that if you wanted to plant pinot, it would be always your highest vineyard. So you really need to go up to the mountains as high as possible. You must try and scratch that 450, 500 meters above sea level. It becomes century. The only problem is sometimes you lack a bit of sunlight hours. Because you're so close to the, the mountain slopes, so you get a little bit more shade, which sometimes can be slightly problematic. So you sometimes often have a situation where you've got ripeness, so you've got a bit of that opal ripeness, but sometimes you still sit with a little bit of that, I wouldn't say green, but like a little minty perfume, fennel type characters. And so... With our vinification, it was always important that try to not keep the stem contents too high in the ferments, but obviously keeping the whole berry contents. And through that process, to get a bit of more perfume and aromatics. And so I think that was, for me, more important to kind of get enough brightness in the pinot. So when it comes to human Arda Valley, I realized in the first year or two that we can sometimes, when we make them too aromatic, they become maybe slightly too perfumed to some extent. Where there we try to focus a bit more on the texture of the wines, give them a slightly more structure. I have found, for me personally, that it helps to do slightly longer elevage for me with the Manada fruit, so that it's not so primary. Because remember, because of the region being quite maritime, you have an abundance of fruit and aromatics in the wines. And I obviously like slightly more of that secondary type of flavor profile, so we like to them a bit longer, where in friendship we tend to keep the elevator, the oak aging regime um, a bit shorter, where we try to capture more of the brightness, and in an art of value, we obviously try to show less of that bite characters, because there's so much flavor already in the wines. Yeah. We obviously know in South Africa, a region like Elgin, up in the Frapo Mountains, there's some really good samples, so you can think of Iona, or Paul Kluver and, and people like that making some fantastic Pinot Noirs. I think that areas that is still quite unexplored at the moment, and I think there's a few examples that's been coming out. Uh, one we called uh, the Friendo. They started making Pinot from the Cedarburg area, and obviously they get that snow-capped kind of winters. Great for aging. I think there's the possibility for some really old vineyards in the future one day. And it's an area that Peter Allen works with. I work with this area myself. I do a very small quantity, which I generally only do for the winemakers guild auction. It's an area called Kaiman's Hut. If you're sitting in front of where I'm sitting now, if it's eight kilometers as the crow flies, you're in the mountains and there's an area that is an apple area. And there's actually some vineyards farming and there's some really great Pinot Noir coming out of that little properties there. There's no producer up there, but we also got a grapes from there. So there's some great examples of areas like this that I think is still unexplored and, and there's a lot of potential for. I think we're still trying to figure out what the ideal site for Pinot is in South Africa. It's obviously a, a really old winemaking region since the mid-1600s, but Pinot has only really been taken seriously in South Africa since the 1980s and particularly 1990. And we've only had the Dijon's clones in the country mid-late 90s, 2000s. So we're still in our infancy in terms of figuring out 
where best to plant Pinot and how best to make it. So I think the, the Yemen Otter works really well. The proximity to a pretty cold ocean plus a little bit of altitude helps a lot. We started with Himalayan Otter and just known that it's had a good track record. A lot of it, just learning from my dad about what works. He's been working with Pinot and the Himalayan Otter since 1979. So he's done a lot of that work, thankfully, and was able to point me in the right direction in terms of the right source to use. I'm always looking around. I'm pretty inquisitive when it comes to vineyards and to winemaking sites. And I, I'm working with some Chardonnay from that limestone site up the East Coast, which is really interesting. Totally different fruit character to the wine. Still trying to figure out exactly how to work with it, but add something to the Agnes, one of my Chardonnays that I produce. I've worked with a bit of Pinot there, but it's a higher rainfall area in the summer and i'm not sure that pinot is exactly the right fit for that area pinot is pretty fussy about where it's planted and where it's grown so it's much harder to experiment with pinot than it is with chardonnay say which has got a much more tolerance towards higher summer rainfall and that kind of thing and some of the sites are just too cold as well it's not something that one really thinks of when you think of south african wine is sites that are too cold but you just don't get the flavor development you don't get the tannin development and i think that's why the human order does so well in that it's just got that lovely balance of being really temperate having temperatures in the summer that are constant they don't get too high it just has that lovely balance of many factors that form the reasons why it works so well we source from Yellowskloof, we source from Himalayan Otter Valley, Himalayan Otter Ridge, an area that's just outside of the Himalayan Otter that we're actually in the process of registering a new ward name for. And then from Yellowskloof as well, which is much more continental. So that's about 50, 60 kilometers from the ocean and 700 meters higher, 2100 feet in your language. So totally different. We focus predominantly on coastal vineyards and then we've got the high altitude Yellowskloof sites. And then also a couple of Chardonnay sites that are inland and higher in altitude. So really looking for the best possible sites of Pinot rather than focusing on one particular area. And then another thing that I'm very particular on is working with soils that are heavy in clay. We have a soil type here called Bockefeld Shale, which loosely translates into antelope field shale. So a very iron rich shale with a lot of clay. So we're talking 30 to 50% clay content. And for me, that's critical in producing quality Pinot. I think it's predominantly a water retention thing. Also availability of nutrients. You don't have leaching out of the soil, so you've got vineyards that have access to water. Even the Himalayan Otter can still be fairly dry in some years, particularly the drought years that we had between 2015 and 2019. And we're heavily a winter rainfall area. Having that water available to the vines going to spring, I think, is a massive advantage. We do get some summer rainfall as well, and that often just helps to carry the vines a little bit further in terms of ripeness. Even within that soil type, there's certain parts of the slope and usually lower down on the slopes that are generally better than higher up on the slopes. It's also a little bit of experimentation as well. You know, some of the new areas have had a strong feeling that's going to work there and most of it has, but some of it not as well as others. And then something like Elon's Cliff, which is obviously totally different. My dad's been working with Chardonnay there for about 30 years and just had a good gut feel that it would work there and fortunately it has worked super well there's not a lot of it there but managed to put together a few good wines from there as have some of the other producers who buy fruit from it which has been great to see the shale soils play a role in that because we have conditions which are perhaps best described as too dry the lower layers of the shale soils are a clay substance they are not clays as such but they hold moisture very capably, which means that when the southeast winds are blowing here, there's always just enough moisture for the roots to be happy. 
The converse happens in Burgundy. Burgundy produces its best Pinot Noirs in the limestone soils. And the physical characteristic of limestone is that it's porous. So you've got semi-arid implication from the limestone soil when everything else is wetter in the summer in Burgundy. And again, you have in Tago where they have little rain in the autumn period, so they can allow the Pinot Noir to hang at very cold conditions. So what, what I find fascinating is that we all live in our little own theater where events with its soil climate play a role for us to produce wines of a magic caliber. Kauerbockefeld shell also seems to bring out a lot of, lot of minerality in Pinot Noirs. And then generally, a lot of areas, these decomposed granite soils, it doesn't seem to often give that upfront minerality, but it brings much more nice acidities out in these wines. So I think that type of soils is great potential for the aging of Pinots. And I think we haven't tasted Pinots from South Africa yet that's grown on slate soils and things like that, real slate soils like in parts of Europe. But I think that could be something interesting for the future. And generally then always standard soils that do well is sandstone, also source of very high clay contents, which we found more against areas within the mountains. They obviously have the benefit of clay and altitude. They obviously then often make pinots that are a little bit more skin and tighter, but they seem to have nice textures and I also think just great for potential for classic style pinots. There's more than one way to plant a vine, farm a vineyard, or make wine from grapes once you've brought them to the cellar. There may be accepted usual practices for certain grapes or certain areas, but viticultural and winemaking decisions play a role just as the soils of the vineyard do. In fact, they interact with each other and a host of other factors. One of the things that we do different in order to get full-bodied Pinot Noir is that we do high-density planting regime. And one may say, is why are we almost alone in this practice? It's my summary that high-density planting gives you a greater leaf surface area over a plot of land than if you have wider spacing of the plantings. And that is why it is the practice in Burgundy and Bordeaux, because you're just going to get that much more colour and backbone into the wine. If you took a bird's eye view of your plot of land and you're looking at vines that are closely planted, the amount of bare earth that you're going to see on that bird's eye view let's say it would be arguably 10 to 20% of the whole vineyard exists in the summer. On a wider planting, it might be 40% or even greater that's bare earth, which means in an acre of land with high-density plantings, you've got 80% leaf surface area exposed to the sun. And wider spacings, you've only got 60% or less. And also on a bigger canopy, you've got more leaves that are shaded out and they are less efficient. No doubt if you've got a more vigorous soil, you can't plant too close together because the vines will grow into each other. So one's got to feel that balance. That has definitely worked very successfully for us here at Bushard from this. 
We don't add any yeast to any of the wines. We try and do, this is, is almost becoming a parody of sense of minimalist winemaking and do as little as possible. But we've been doing it for a long time. It's all natural fermentation. Try and not add any acid. There are years when we have to bump it up a little bit. So working as naturally as possible, but still trying to be practical. I don't tolerate faults in wines. I'm pretty particular about the hygiene, about making sure that the wines are clean, but I want them to represent where they come from as much as possible. Winemaking, any vineyard planting is intervening just trying to find ways of working as hard as we can in the vineyard, working on flavor development, leading up to harvest, and then just really looking after that, just steering the ship in the right direction as much as possible, but also leaving room for interesting things to happen. I think if you're too controlled during the winemaking process, then you take away that potential for beautiful mistakes to happen or beautiful surprises, at least, that lead to really interesting things. I'll generally make a decision on how much whole cluster to use in a vineyard, but then I'll I'll have another separate, smaller fermentation of 100% whole cluster of that vineyard, you know, to see how that goes. And then I bottled a few vineyards of 100% whole cluster wine called a very imaginatively whole bunch and released that on its own. And those kind of experiments, I think it's, it's important to always keep learning, pushing, keep trying new things. Vineyards change as they get older as well. I think the approach needs to change with that. And I think it's just important not to get stuck in the way one's working. Just if it's something's been successful in the past, doesn't mean that's going to carry on being successful in the future. Just to try and keep an open mind about things and keep things fresh. I think the benefit with Pinot in South Africa, firstly, is that the people who make Pinot in South Africa make it for the right reasons. Pinot producers here genuinely are people who love the variety, who are passionate about it, who would obviously spend a bit of extra cash on drinking a good burgundy for inspiration and that type of thing is actually traveled quite a bit. So people are doing it really for the right reasons. The consumer in South Africa is to some extent the same. We know South Africa is expensive to produce. They're not in love with high yields. You obviously have to do a lot of yield management. You obviously have to give these vineyards a hell of a lot more care. They're very sensitive in the cellar. Remember, we don't work with the highest assets and pHs. So there's a lot of other things we need to be aware of. And and so generally, I think the consumer who also then drink pina in this country also appreciates pina because the general public, they find, I guess, more of the expensive side. They're obviously affordable qualities around. But generally, I think people just experience Pinot different in South Africa. And that's why when you do get a Pinot bottle from South Africa, I think it will be genuinely always decent quality. I'm very seldom that people would put anything to, to a bottle if they're a Pinot producer. I think what is interesting, and this maybe really comes into play in South Africa now, is that when I started out in the industry, everybody could produce quite a fruit basket of varieties. So on a property, you have anything from Pinot to Syrah to Cabernet planted. And I think Pinot was one of the first varieties where people realized in South Africa that if you want to do it, you need to be serious about the variety. It's not something you can do on the side. And I think that is where people started establishing themselves in regions that started to tick the boxes for making quality Pinot. And I think that's why the consumer is actually very fortunate in our country and also globally is that the offering from Pinot in South Africa is quite serious, quite focused, and they really have, over the years, created their own identity and our own very unique style of Pinot Noir. And that is purely because people who took on or start waving the flag for Pinot are serious, and they start establishing themselves in really good regions and areas where they can actually work with this variety. And I think that is something that's quite unique 
to South Africa. Because you must remember, um, and people sometimes forget, farming in South Africa, it doesn't matter how you look at it, water is always a problem. We generally have dry growing seasons, wet winters, cold units is something that is not everywhere. You often look for areas where you can get that extra chill factor so the vines can really sterilize themselves. And we make wine in a country and we farm in a country where there's no subsidies and things. Where if you are serious about something, you're going to have to be seriously focused because it's not easy to do. And I think that's why it's challenging, but it's also why it's exciting and why people in the South African wine industry are so supportive of each other. They're really open, they're really helpful, and it's just a great connection and great support if you in in our South African wine business. I think that Pinot is going to remain pretty niche. Pinot in South Africa is not something that's ever going to be too widespread just because the climate doesn't suit it. We don't have enough areas in the winemaking regions that are suitable to Pinot. The Swatlands never say never, but there's a pretty high degree of certainty that it's never going to work. Stellenbosch, there's a couple of sites where it's okay, but something like Chardonnay works well in some of the higher sites of Stellenbosch, but Pinot not so much. So it's very much limited by the climate, by the soils that we have. So I think we must just focus on growing it where it's happy and making the best possible wines that we can from those areas, but also not trying to force it to grow in places where it's not going to work. I think with Pinot's popularity worldwide, a lot of that's happening and you're getting a lot of that being planted in places where it's just really not happy. And unfortunately or fortunately, you can't really hide behind winemaking techniques and oaking with Pinot. It's really transparent and I think it's never going to be able to be something that it's not. It's never going to be a politician. I just encourage people to try South African Pinot. It's not a country that people automatically go to for cool climate varieties, but I think that we punch way beyond our weight in terms of quality. For the small amount of Pinots that we produce in the country, I think there's some excellent quality. And you've got people like Neil Martin and Tim Atkin and a lot of the world's kind of top wine critics that rave about South African Pinot and really encourage people just to try it and see what we can do because it's a super exciting category for us. The one aspect that I realized in time with wine is that while we always looking for causes and factors in our favor from the earth and the soil and the climate, etc., the winemaker's palate at the end of the day is going to carry perhaps the most impact on what goes into the bottle. And South African early years, many South Africans went to France for training, etc. We still travel the world extensively, and I'd like the audience to understand that in every country in the world there are great wines made, and I think South Africa competes handsomely with any of our brotherhood in the international wine industry. I thank you. As always, I like to get an American perspective on these wines. And in this case, I turn to Stephanie Schwartz in New York City. Stephanie, how are you? I'm doing well today, Jim. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Pinot Noir is not a major grape in South Africa in terms of volume. It's only about 1.4% of their plantings. Was this a category that you were familiar with before I reached out to you? A little bit. I worked with some South African wines years ago when I was a sommelier at Oriol. We had a couple of Pinot Noirs, but mostly the big Bordeaux-style wines. That makes sense. 
Do you think people would be surprised to hear that there's Pinot Noir in South Africa, given that we associate Africa and South Africa with a warmer climate? I don't think so. I think at this point, Pinot Noir, it's a a pretty huge international grape. I, I don't think it would surprise anyone that it's there. I think what would surprise them is hearing how little there is. So you would think there would be more plantings there or? I thought that there were more plantings there. I did not realize that there were so few. Yeah, I think it's a grape that's largely in the hands of specialists and was never part of the bulk wine industry that dominated South African production during the 20th century. So it really is a post-apartheid variety or first really started appearing in the 80s. And it's really become a specialty of a few different regions. And the wines Mm -hmm. that we sent you are mostly from those regions. So I think if we start with the Paul Kluver, this is from Elgin which has yes. become known for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And this is one of the leading properties in developing the Elgin Appellation, which is Paul Kluver. How was this wine showing? I thought this was absolutely delightful, wonderful entry to the category of South African Pinot Noir. You know, it's a bit lighter, it's dry, has this beautiful, vibrant acidity that just dances across the palate. And then you have those classic cherry, raspberry notes, a little bit of floral. It's beautiful. I feel like the old world, new world discussion is becoming a little bit passe, but would you line this up as one or the other if you were tasting it blind? I would probably put this a bit more new world. It makes me think of a cooler climate Sonoma Pinot Noir, like something from Anderson Valley, something like that. Oh, okay. That's one of my favorite spots in California, so that's good to hear. And they have a similar maritime influence in both cases, so that makes sense. Yeah, being very close to the ocean and having those cool breezes coming in. Right. Now, our second wine actually uses a little bit of Stellenbosch fruit. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the fruit is from Hemlenarda Ridge, which is the most interior of the three Hemlenarda wards. And this is the Botanica Mary Delaney collection. How did this wine compare in style to the Paul Kluver? Definitely bigger. We're still not in full-bodied wine category by any means, but comparatively, it's bigger. More in that medium category, the tannins are a bit riper, they're silkier, more developed. You still have that incredibly juicy acidity, and the fruit is a little bit more concentrated and intense. That's interesting, because we do have a vintage difference Mm. here as well, because we have the 2018 Paul Kluver and the 2017 Botanica. Yeah. 2018 was generally a little bit of a warmer vintage, but of course, Elgin is the coolest area in South mm-hmm. Africa. So perhaps that's where the difference in body comes from rather than the vintage. The Paul Kluver from Elgin, just having more of that cooling influence, it's definitely going to keep the, the acidity levels significantly brighter. It's going to keep the fruit a little bit lighter, not as ripe. And certainly, I, I don't know the percentages of the Stellenbosch fruit in the Botanica, but yeah. one would imagine that's going to add some weight and texture yeah. to the wine. I agree with that. I was trying to find out where the fruit was coming from also and could not find that information. The Stellenbosch fruit would be on her estate, which is Mm -hmm. Devon Valley. So Mm -hmm. the the small little valley, really just outside the town of Stellenbosch proper. And I thought this was absolutely wonderful. A little bit more for your intermediate Pinot Noir drinker, if you will. The grape has a lot of variations and you want something with a little bit more oomph to it, but you're not quite ready to move into your full-bodied wine with the steak just yet. Got it. 
All right. And then the final line we sent you comes from someone we talked to earlier in the podcast, Peter Allen Finlayson. He's from a family of Pinot Noir makers. And this is exclusively from fruit from that Hemonarda Ridge area, the Cuvée Cinema. What did you think of this one? This one was my favorite of the three, probably because I found it to be the most serious of the three. We're still in that medium-bodied category. Tannins are ripe and silky, vibrant acidity. It's so expressive. It was immediately jumping out of the glass right into my nose. You have all that cherry, raspberry, uh, starting to get baking spice. I believe they do use some new oak on this one. So that is definitely apparent there. And it's just beautiful, complex, lingers on the palate. This is your serious Pinot Noir drinkers, Pinot Noir. Which stands to reason considering the specialty and the focus of both the producer and the region in that case. Exactly. So now from your point of view, who are these wines for? You've already hinted at this, but if someone coming from Burgundy going to be looking for these wines or is it someone who grew up with California Pinot? Who would you sell this to if they came into the restaurant? The Crystal and Cuvée Cinema, I would give this to a Burgundy drinker, definitely. Maybe an Oregon Pinot Noir drinker as well. But the California wine drinkers, I would bring them the Botanica or the Paul Kluver. That's how those are correlating for me. But it's also impossible to be disappointed by any one of these wines. They're all just absolutely fantastic. I hope you enjoyed this look at South African Pinot Noir. You can find more resources and links to the producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. As you've heard, much of our conversation today centered around the Hemelinarda Valley. Way back in the early days of our podcast, we devoted a whole episode to this special part of the Cape South Coast. Check out episode six if you'd like to learn more. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode, we're going to look at a grape whose total plantings aren't that much more extensive than Pinot Noir's, but which has a much longer, deeper history in South Africa. In fact, for the first half of the 20th century, it was the country's most planted grape variety. Crossed with Pinot Noir, it yielded South Africa's native variety, Pinotage. It passed into obscurity for a time, but these days, excitement around the grape is mounting. Sinso has made a comeback, and the wines are delicious. (laughs) 